Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. As British astronaut Tim Peake prepares for a spacewalk, we join him at the receiving end of his first amateur radio contact from the space station and why staying in bed to help astronauts is not all it's cracked up to be. They are not allowed to stand up during the 60 days. Not for the toilet, not for showering, for nothing. We'll also be talking to NASA astronaut and medical doctor Michael Barrett about the challenges of space surgery. And we're joined in the studio by film director Mark Craig, whose documentary movie about Gene Cernan, Last Man on the Moon, is finally getting a cinema release in the United States and will hopefully get one in the UK later this year as well. Well, Mark, welcome. You spent a lot of time with Captain Gene Cernan. He likes to be referred to as, as Captain Cernan. I notice in the film he's referred to as Captain Cernan quite a lot. Uh, do you conclude that astronauts are different to the rest of us, or have they changed? My feeling is that if they're not before they go into space, they certainly are by the time they come back. I don't think you can go as far out there as he did and not be affected by the experience, and, and, and he's spoken at great length about that ever since he's, he, he came back home. Astronauts, they're all different, as we're all different, you know, and, and I think we, those of us who followed the Apollo program know that those 12 men that walked on the moon are a pretty mixed bag, uh, and, and we're all affected in very different ways. Do you think they were different then to now? I mean, we're going to talk a bit more about your film later, but, I mean... Just in terms of compare a Gene Cernan, if you like, with a Tim Peake? A lot of those astronauts, as we know, came from either military flying backgrounds or test pilot backgrounds. Gene was a, a, a naval aviator, and of course he will say they were better than the Air Force and all the other types of flyers because they had a much smaller space to, uh, to land on. And I think, yes, there was very much a... Certainly in that day... Uh, in, in that era, you know, it wasn't so very long after World War II. Um, there was a lot of Cold War activity happening, and if you were if you were in that pipeline of the military career, then you know you you were tough and you were gung ho and you were wanting to do it better than your your, your flying buddy. And so, yes, it's incredibly macho, competitive, certainly non scientific approach. Well, Tim Peake, I think, is somebody who represents all of that. If he's been a helicopter pilot, which is pretty macho to me, he's got a, an aeronautical degree, he, he's got it all. And apart from getting the new year to a, a spectacular start by being slated to do a six-hour spacewalk to repair a solar shunt unit, Britain's latest astronaut, that's Tim Peake, he's also engaged in a, a number of experiments and projects to get school kids more interested in science, technology, engineering, maths, and, of course, space. And one of these initiatives is called ARIS. It's the Amateur Radio on the International Space Station. It involves setting up a mobile Earth station and Sandringham School in St Albans became the first school after, I must admit, 
some quite heart-stopping moments where we weren't sure we were going to get that link, but they did it and they made contact with Tim the first time since he's arrived in orbit. This is Golf Bravo 1. So I'm Alan Gray, head teacher at Sandringham School. They'll be buzzing about this. I've just heard that because we broadcast this to the whole school, when they came out of their classrooms, all they were talking about was this contact. Oh, that's wonderful. It took a while. We were all sat there with our stomachs churning. We think there was a little bit of a problem with the communication equipment on the space station rather than at our end. Uh, obviously, they'll analyse that properly. And so they'll check that up on the space station. It wasn't us. It was you. <laughs> well, I'm not going to point the finger at him. Okay, no, he's been really busy. Obviously, there was an EVA just before Christmas, which was unexpected. He's going on a spacewalk next week. He's getting his spacesuit fitted, so he's got other priorities up there. I'm just uh, really pleased he could find ten minutes to speak to us here today. I'm Matthew Cosby. I'm the chief scientist at Goonhilly Earth Station. The main station is actually in the car park just outside the school but we use ourselves as a background station in case there's a problem. It was quite nerve-wracking, actually, waiting all that to be at. <laughs> Did they have to go to backup mode? Did they use Goonhilly in the end? They didn't use Goonhilly in the end, no. These, actually, there are two frequencies that were used. There's the audio frequency, and that was the one that was having problems. The video signal was very solid. The video signal was very good. Unfortunately, the camera was not plugged in, so we couldn't see inside Columbus. But we know that that will work for the next school. Hopefully, the camera will be configured ready, so we'll be able to see Tim. But we're very, very happy that we managed to talk to Tim. It's a relief, and it was very good to hear his voice. So my name's Sean Cleaver, and I'm a mission systems engineer at Airbus Defence and Space. Now, you've brought um, a Mars rover with you here. Which one is it? We've got a few prototype Mars rovers back at Airbus in Stevenage. And this one here um, is a great demonstration of kind of what the the Mars rover that we're currently building is going to look like. Is this the first time you've ever actually been involved in a a direct communication with the space station? Yes, this is the first time and I leapt at the opportunity when they asked for somebody from Airbus to to come. It's really been such a special day and I've been fascinated. All over Christmas I've been watching the live stream of the International Space Station, so to be here today and actually listen to the students talking to Tim, that's been something really, really special. 
I'm Mike Jones and I'm the chairman of the Youth Committee for the Radio Society of Great Britain. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity, it's not every day you get to go and speak to an astronaut in space. So this goes right from building and launching your own equipment, so you can speak halfway around the world with stuff that you've built yourself as a licensed amateur, to going and speaking to people in space as we've seen today. I'm Jessica Lee and I have a Foundations Licensed Amateur Radio. It's my second contact. So how do you feel that it went and it went well? It hasn't actually hit me just how massive this event is, the scale of this event, but I think at home tonight I'll be like, wow, I've, I've talked to Tim Peake from space, from our school, and just completely elated by it. I'm Philip Letcher and I asked him about how he performs the rapid cooling of liquid metals in space. And what made you ask that question? Because it's quite a complex one. Yeah, I was interested in the EML experiment, the electromagnetic levitator, which they have on board. And did he answer the question yes. to your satisfaction? Yeah, they'll be performing it using gases such as argon to keep it stable in small amounts, and they'll be cooling down the metals. So how do you feel about the fact that you've actually spoken to Britain's first European Space Agency astronaut? It's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to always remember this moment it's incredible some of the students there from Sandringham School in St Albans who got the opportunity to make that first amateur radio contact with Tim Peake and I can't tell you how excited everybody was afterwards and also that delay that hiccup to begin with did make everyone there a added to the drama because you were thinking oh my goodness what's going to happen but also it's a brilliant reminder that space we sometimes do make it look too easy and something as simple as communicating again I've used the word simple as communicating with the space station actually is quite a feat when you've got a short window it's going above you at 17 and a half thousand miles an hour and you've got to time that window right the weather conditions have got to be right, the signals, the technology, but, you know, way. I love the old school aspect of it, if you pardon the pun, the fact that they are <laughs> communicating by radio almost with the, with the space station. It, it's, it's got an old-fashioned feel to it. And what was nice as well, it was that Jess, the, the girl that you heard who did the, the call signs, this was her, as, as she said, you know, that she'd only just got her licence. This is only her second attempt to do radio ham radio contact and it's with an astronaut i mean you can't you can't beat that i mean wonderful experience for everyone well it premiered more than a year ago but now last man on the moon is finally being released in american cinemas the film focuses on gene cernan a working class boy who grew up to do extraordinary things going down to 10 feet As soon as you hit the surface, the dust is gone, the engine is shut down, there's no noise. You are magically in another world. It was the ultimate quiet moment in my life. Pure silence. 
Well, that was an extract from the movie and uh, you heard the, the landing of Apollo 17. And, and as you can tell, I think just from that, that oh, clip... Oh, it's made me want to see well, it already. <laughs> I, I would say this, I'm no film critic, but I think it's, it's beautifully paced, Mark. I think you've done a beautiful job with the pacing. It, the temptation, I think, with space, so anything space is to make it overly dramatic... But actually, it's it's the fuller story. It's it's the long shots, and it's the story of his life. It's almost a story of a of an old man who did this amazing thing. I mean, what was your approach when when you set out to make this film? Well, all of the above, actually. I mean, he is a I'll call him an elderly man, uh, 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 you know, an old pilot. But certainly, you know, one of the things that attracted me to it is the fact that he is the last man on the moon, which means we haven't been back in forty odd years. And that's a statement in itself. But he, you know, he is mellowed with age. He's got a fantastic personality and, and ability to articulate his experiences, which not necessarily all of them had. And I think I was, I was initially just completely enthralled by his book, which was a page-turner. It's one of the more honest astronaut accounts, isn't it? I mean, particularly when he talks about his family and his divorce and what happened after the moon. Yeah, I don't want to give the, the plot away. No. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler but, uh, alert! Sorry, yes. But uh, but basically, yes. I, I mean, I mean, clearly, he he wasn't getting too bogged down in the you know the the, the science or the engineering side of it all or all that kind of stuff. He, he was a human being, you know, that that had got some perspective since that time, and, and I think had had met enough people to know kind of what what we want to hear. And and let's face it, you know, that there have been hundreds of documentaries made about, you know, the thrust of the engine and how they got there and Von Braun and his team and orbital mechanics. And I, I, I'm not from that background at all. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking for stories that have an emotional heartbeat to them. And I just, as I read the book, it just kept ticking the boxes, you know, and I thought, OK, this, this has got to, I've got to give this one a crack. Now, I saw the premiere quite a long time ago, almost 18 months ago, at the Science Museum when, it, when it, you showed it in... Uh, in London. And the thing that struck me about it, it's quite funny in parts. There's a scene where he's trying to get on a horse and you put that against, you know, coming down the lunar land or doing all this training and everything. And it is funny. And the interactions with his friends are also quite funny. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, I, I didn't want it to be a dry film at all. I mean, that just doesn't play well on a big screen for 90 minutes. You know, you, you, you've, you've got to go to all the emotional range that is available to you. You know, we've all got some level of humour and sadness and regret and guilt and all those things. And and uh, I, I think as I built up my relationship with Gene through a, a series of interviews and, and uh, location filming, a lot of stuff just came out. You know, and and, and it was it was a, a real privilege to be able to capture that and work with it. Uh, and, and certainly one of the things I was very keen to do was not just sit him down in a studio and talk to him, but actually take him back to some key locations that were very important in his life when he was an astronaut. The launch pads down at the Cape, the old house that he lived in, Mission Control, and of course Arlington Cemetery, because there's quite a few of his buddies there. Uh, uh, again, I was going to say, we just, you mentioned the, the launch pad at the Cape, again, without giving too much away. The sense you get from that where you're filming him there and he's looking at this not only sadness but he he comes across as quite angry that america went to the moon and it stopped do you get that sense as, as you talk to him and as your relationship developed yeah absolutely every day we film him he he, he expressed <laughs> himself and and how, how how it is today i mean you know of course the, the shuttle flights stopped what 
five years ago now or four years ago and and I think you know coming from that space race era that he did he is very concerned that you know that there's not a big enough American involvement I think he's savvy enough to know that you know if we're going to go forward into space and deeper into space then it's going to be a multinational uh, effort but but I think he, he has a great sense of national pride born of that era and who can blame him that says you know come on guys we've got to get out there and a man like Gene Cernan, bearing in mind he is from that fighter jock mentality, he's interested in the fact that there's robots on Mars and we're sending probes out there, but really he's all about human endeavour. He doesn't really get excited until, you know, guys put their life on the line and go, go way out there. And if he was sitting here now speaking to you, he'd probably say one of his great lines, which is, nobody ever gave a robot a ticker tape parade. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but today's astronauts don't get ticker tape parades, do they? They share their lives on social media. They tweet from the space station. They make YouTube videos on how to go to the toilet. It's a very different style. It, it's, it's more informal. It, it's more on the, the whole time. You met Chris Hadfield. Yes who's definitely one of the, that, that sort of social media savvy generation. What, what did you find was the sort of difference between somebody like Cernan and somebody like Hadfield? Well, when I met Chris Hadfield, Gene Cernan was in the room as well. So I, I, I found it fascinating to hear the two of them talking about these differences. And you're absolutely right. You know, they are from two completely different eras. The world has changed so much in 40, 50 years since that pioneering uh, era of space travel and I think that's the thing you know that the, the, the technology that was available to those people of, of Mercury, Gemini and Apollo just was a fraction of what we have now you know there, there were just so many unknowns back then and, and I think that's why those astronauts in those days did get ticker tape parades because there was nobody else like them before. Now maybe we're a little bit more used to the fact that there's now hundreds of people gone into space, at least lower Earth orbit, uh, which Gene Cernan is always keen to point out. But um, yes, there are differences. I, I think that's more about the scientific approach and, and the, you know, the, the, the process. I don't know. I'm not really the expert. But what I was very struck by when I sat listening to them talking is that there are actually a lot of similarities as well. They both missed their families. Their families were worried. There was a, you know, a great sense of focus on the mission, and, of course, you know, it's the relationships with your, your colleagues and your, your crewmates, you know, that that's very, very important. Funnily enough, somebody at the Sandringham School event, we were talking about this very thing in terms of the social media aspect of it and what today's astronauts are expected to do is to be much more of a, a good performer and a good communicator because, as you hinted earlier, not all the early astronauts were very good communicators either, and it wasn't even expected to be a part of their role. They hadn't really thought past what happens after you get back. And somebody did describe it as it's almost big brother in space now. You're, yeah. you're constantly there. You can be communicated with it visually or, or by ham radio or whatever. For you, though, as somebody without a space background, you've made lots of documentaries from very on very different subjects. How does this one compare for you? You know, what are you left with as a result of being incredibly fortunate to spend how long months with with Jean? Well, it certainly took years to before the film actually began to be filmed, and so a relationship was being established uh, there. Uh, I think we had a total of about forty-two days actual filming. Not all of them were Jean, but that's you know the best part of six or seven weeks. Uh, and of course, 
you know, through the post-production process, yeah, we, we, we've we've had a, a massive amount of time together, and 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 um, not just at filming as well. He's it, been f- fantastic, and and quite honestly, to answer your question, I don't know how really I'm going to top it. That- so you've got the same problem, ironically, as Gene Cernan has. Yeah, <laughs> I, yes, I, I see where you're coming from, and yeah, I, I I don't know. There's there's as a filmmaker, I like to think I've still got a, a few more tricks and ideas in the tank that I can I can push out there but but in terms of the experience of making this particular film I think the whole Apollo era was such a big deal for mankind and I really got that through reliving it with Gene you know he takes us all back to the moon again he takes us to those uh, that 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 time and and not just him but some of his astronaut buddies some of the the wives his daughter you know that it's a collective experience and it, it was such a big deal that I hope people who were old enough to remember it uh, really enjoyed reliving it and those who were who were too young to remember it really have their eyes opened and what's the release date in the states we release next month on the 26th of February. Brilliant. It's a theatrical release in 13 cities to start with. Uh, I mean, if it goes down well, that, that may be extended or there may be other cities added. A few weeks after that in March, we're currently in discussions about um, a theatrical release here in the UK. Yay, come on. But I cannot give you any concrete information at the moment. Well, we believe, will believe inform me. people on yeah. Facebook and Twitter as soon <clears throat> as we... We know, fingers crossed, we've got that. UK uh, and you're doing a release. sort of simultaneous DVD release. You're doing a later DVD or, or a streaming release. Yeah, uh, DVD and uh, um, VOD will be available in May. Is that what they call it now? VOD. VOD. Video, Video on, on demand. demand. Yeah, yes. yeah. VOD. <laughs> Sorry, but um, sounds like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, really, doesn't it? Yeah. So we're focused on the USA releases at the moment, but certainly it's going to it's going to be increasingly out there in the coming few months. Not too many now. And it's really, I suppose, to sum up what you're saying, a space film, but not about space. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I you know. Uh, my sensibilities as a filmmaker are not com- are not coming from a scientific background or, or or a space background. I'm always interested in the human story. That just happens to be the setting, and it was probably the greatest setting, you know, for all mankind. If I can reuse that that phrase, and so yeah, I think I think it's a, a real emotional roller coaster. Well, Mark, thanks very much for coming in. You can hear our extended interview with Gene Cernan in our August 2014 podcast. You'll find all the Space Boffins podcasts on the Naked Scientists website. And still to come in this edition of Space Boffins, we meet the real Dr McCoy and lying in bed for science. Synthetic biology is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very much grassroots based. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we return to the world of synthetic biology, discovering some of the ways this revolutionary technology might change the world. Plus, a genetic test to reveal flu risk and a twisted gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. Now, astronauts from any era need to be physically fit, But what happens if you get ill 
in space. Well, NASA chose a crew medical officer for each mission, but some astronauts are more qualified than others for this position as they are also medical doctors. Well, Michael Barrett is one of those astronauts. He's uh, developed medical systems for Space Station Freedom, served as NASA flight surgeon for the shuttle and also supported the shuttle Mir program and medical operations for the ISS before he was selected as a NASA astronaut in 2000. And he's since been on several missions, performed two spacewalks and has completed 199 days in space. I caught up with him recently to discuss what it's like being the real equivalent of one of sci-fi's most famous medics. Well, as much as I'd like to be the equivalent of uh, Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, and I guess I've been compared to Dr. McCoy of Star Trek, which was uh, quite flattering to me, we're quite not at that point yet where we have a large enough crew size and we're remote enough to have a dedicated medical officer. So if you have a starship with hundreds of people, it's an easy equation. Whereas we will have six people on the International Space Station, all of which are doing the jobs of experiments and producing science and maintaining the space station. So we basically can't afford a a dedicated medical officer. However, any crew we have, we have one or two people always trained as a crew medical officer, and we're never guaranteed that one of them is a doctor, but if they are, then the training is much easier and the level of care is, is quite a bit more. And that person, if they're a physician also, can help advance the understanding of the human in space and find new ways to prevent some of the issues and recognize some of the issues that we see. And what sort of equipment is there on the International Space Station to deal with medical emergencies? We do have a limited medical capability up there. It's very much like a downgraded paramedic might have in his kit. So we will have scoop-and-go capabilities, meaning you could stabilize somebody who is traumatic, uh, has a traumatic injury or is emergently ill with a heart attack. We do have a defibrillator. We have a small transport ventilator and airway handling capabilities and some emergency drugs. Uh, but we can't sustain someone for too long because it's so resource-intensive. And so our idea would be to stabilize and return to Earth as quickly as we can. And that's the luxury of being in low-Earth orbit. You can actually get home fairly quickly. But the bread and butter of space medicine is actually a more mundane set of issues that uh, will definitely affect human performance if you're not ready for them, uh, but uh, much less exciting. And you you mitigate against illness because every astronaut who flies to the space station goes into a quarantine period. So I suppose people are unlikely to get ill. But what about a a surgical emergency, a a burst appendix or, you know, a a heart attack, something, something like that? So a surgical emergency, if you're in low Earth orbit, is best dealt with by getting on a return ship and coming home as quickly as possible. And we can actually do that within hours. We can have somebody in a definitive care center on on the Earth, and uh, that's how we would deal with that. Now, it becomes a more dicey question if you want to go further, if you're on your way to Mars. That's my next question. Are you already considering what sort of surgical kit, what sort of medical kit you will need? So the further we go, the more constrained we are in what we can carry and who we can carry. And if you're going to the moon, you still have some real-time communications. So you can talk to somebody on the ground who can guide you through uh, an emergency response, for instance. But uh, getting home is very difficult. It's a minimum of a three-day, probably a five-day trip home from the surface of the moon if you need to evacuate someone. So a true surgical emergency that might have to be dealt with quickly Uh, you may not be equipped, and you may have to accept a higher risk of a surgical problem if you go to the moon. And that will certainly be the case on Mars. So when you're on your way to Mars, you lose two big things. One, 
is uh, you, you can carry even less. So surgical kit is, is almost out of, the question, out of the question unless you have a very large ship. The other thing you lose is real-time communication so that you can't be talked through a procedure from a surgeon on the ground, nor could a surgeon on the ground operate a telerobotic surgical device. So you really have to sacrifice some of your capabilities and just accept a higher risk. What about, though, carrying out surgery in, in those sorts of environments? Is that possible? You've got, I mean, even if you're on Mars, you've, you've got reduced gravity. You haven't got the kit you need. I mean, are you already thinking about these things? Well, certainly. If you had the kit you need, it's certainly possible. We've actually done a lot of work on surgical enclosures and surgical techniques in zero gravity. And believe it or not, there are some surgeons who spend a lot of time working on these problems and have done uh, work in parabolic flight, where you get maybe 25 seconds of, uh, of zero gravity, and tested surgical procedures and enclosures. Dr. Mark Campbell is, is one of those who's very accomplished at this. And so we know how we could perform surgery in zero gravity, and performing surgery on Mars, for instance, with one-third gravity really should not be an issue uh, from a technological standpoint. The biggest issue by far is getting that kit out there. Now, you mentioned experiments have been carried out on zero-G surgery. How successful have they been? What are the challenges of, of, of doing that? I mean, simply using a knife in zero-G against, against the skin, there are going to be issues there. You're right. A lot of these are techniques that you just have to develop a feel for. And, and you can train that. That's not too difficult. But some of the challenges that we have are fluid containment. So if you have a vein, for instance, that's leaking... The, uh, the blood will come out and surface tension will cause it to adhere to all of the surface of your operative field. So you always have to, to move that away. It will not pool in a gutter like it does on the ground. If you nick an artery, the artery uh, has enough pressure in it that the blood will actually escape the operative field and fly up into the atmosphere and, and uh, get in the way of your field of view. So that's a huge problem for us. Another problem is anesthesia because using an inhalational anesthetic agent in a tightly controlled environment is very difficult. Uh, we, we can't deal with the, the exhaled anesthetic, basically, with our contaminant removal system. So we have to have alternate means of, of uh, anesthesia. And just because it's zero gravity, particles don't settle out. So you, you have nothing like the sterility of an operating theater or a clean room. Uh, so wound infection is a big issue just because of those particles floating in zero gravity. So extremely messy, but also you haven't got the actual facilities. I mean, I think there was a plan originally in the Space Station Freedom, the, the predecessor designed to the International Space Station, to have a, a sick bay as such. I mean, is that ever going to be a reality, do you think, a, a medical sick bay in space? Well, I think the medical sick bay in space is, is absolutely a, a reality in the future. But again, it becomes a, a cost-benefit uh, trade where you have to have a certain threshold number of crew members a certain size of platform, whether it's a transit vehicle or a space station, uh, and a certain level of remoteness before that breaks that cost-benefit barrier. So there's absolutely no question about it. We will have a sick bay. It'll be nicely kitted out, and uh, we'll have intuitive systems and user-friendly, long-shelf-life uh, medical capabilities that uh, will support the crew, absolutely. So there will be a McCoy in future, just not right now. I think that's absolutely true. So Dr. McCoy will come. But uh, no time very soon. Space doctor and astronaut Michael Barrett. 
Mark, I saw you sort of wince at some of the descriptions there, particularly of the uh, potential archery uh, mishap in space. Any ambitions to go to space after A, meeting Gene and B, hearing that? Well, I think listening to that, I think Ridley Scott is taking care of all those kind of movies, so I'll leave that to him. Of course, there are some phenomenal challenges when it comes to, to medical procedure in space. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start, but... Certainly, I mean, what I've been interested in listening to some of the astronauts that I've met of the Apollo era, for example, even just picking out um, Gemini 7, Jim Lovell and um, Frank Borman, who spent two weeks in a Gemini craft without being able to open the hatch. That's like essentially like being in the, the front seat of a car, isn't it? Yeah. For, for two weeks. D- doing with, everything. With a friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and he better be a friend. Uh, um, I think even a friend, yeah. <laughs> the stories and that, they'd wear thin. But certainly they, they had some stuff they were trying out for the first time. I mean, that, that, that small confined space is their office, it's their kitchen, it's their bedroom bedroom it's their toilet it it, it is amazing really well there are some people who are so interested in helping scientists understand the physical effects of being in space that they are prepared to lie down and that's it really just lie down and the european space agency's latest bed rest study has been taking place in the german space agency's envihab facility in cologne this modern underground building has white walls no windows bright lights and at its heart is a hospital ward when i visited it felt as if i was on a secret moon base Well, the experiment involves testing ways of overcoming the harmful effects of space. One of the scientists overseeing the study, Petra Fringsmuthen, talked me through what it involves. The countermeasure which we are testing at the moment is a specific training device. It's a jumping system, it's on a sledge, and they can do these uh, jumpings in the lying position. And that's the main goal of the study, that uh, the training will keep bone and muscle mass during bed rest. And therefore, we have six test subjects in the control group who are doing no training and uh, six test subjects in the um, training group. They will do the training. This is the first campaign. And then we will start a second campaign in uh, January, where we will also have six test subjects, control group, only lying for 60 days. And uh, the other group is doing the training. And then we compa- can compare muscle and bone loss. Now, you say bed rest study. Uh, it, it sounds like they're sort of tucked up in bed with, you know, watching TV or with a book, you know, like you might do on a, a Sunday morning, something like that. But actually, you see the the hospital trolleys being wheeled past in the corridor, they're at an angle. So their head is angled down on the bed, these volunteers. Why is that? The head is angled because we want not only to simulate the um, immobilization, um, which uh, leads to bone and muscle loss, we also want to simulate the fluid shift, which uh, takes place in space. So in space, there is microgravity and all fluids of your body goes uh, in the upper direction. The same will happen if you lie in bed when your head, a six-degree head, head up tilted. So this is another simulation module to simulate this fluid shift. And this isn't something where they're just lying down for some of the day. They are really lying down all the time. Even for showers, to go to the toilet, all these things you have to factor in. They are not allowed to stand up during the 60 days. Not for the toilet, not for showering, for nothing. 
So how does that work? I mean, they could have bedpans for the toilet, but you actually have adapted showers, do you? So they stay in their bed to have a shower. Yeah, we have a, a special uh, shower bed, uh, which is also six degree head up tilt. They will move to this bed and then we move them to the shower room position as well. And what about nutrition? Is that something you can factor in as well? This is something you, you study. Yeah, there is a big influence of nutrition on bone and muscle. And uh, therefore, we want to avoid in this study that there is any influence. So we have a really standardized, strict control diet. With this constant and uh, strictly controlled diet, we can say that When we find an effect of the training, then it's really the effect of training and it was not the effect of the nutrition because the nutrition was standardized. Are these worthwhile, these studies? Have they proved themselves in terms of helping astronauts, but also in terms of applications on Earth? Of course, this study is tended to be such an effective training device for astronauts. But in general, when you look at bone loss and muscle loss, there are a lot of applications to Earth problems. For example, sarcopenia, the muscle loss during aging, the um, illness of osteoporosis. These results are also applicable to, to these persons. And uh, we are not only doing space research uh, with these studies. I'm a Christian and I'm taking part in a study lying for 60 days in bed, conducting experiments and see what, what happens with the body. And how long have you been like this? It's now the 14th day. Four zero. Four zero. How d did you get into the mindset of doing that, of, of thinking I've got to stay lying down? Well, actually, I, I didn't think that much about it beforehand. I just decided to take part and I was very curious about what will happen with me, with my mind. What has happened to your mind? I would go mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not that difficult because uh, they serve us in, in every aspect and we have our personal things to read and we can telephone with each other and sometimes we, we even meet in our beds to some games so it's it's really easy now this experiment it's split the the people doing it half and half some are doing some exercises some are, are just lying still which are you i'm in the training group that means uh, every day for about 15 or 20 minutes i do um, special jumps in a sledge system as a countermeasure to this lying in bed but that's still what lying down yeah of course Everything is done in this position. <laughs> Now, the other thing about the, this room, I mean, it feels uncomfortable to me. It's just so white. There's also cameras. Yes. I, if you think about it, you, you, of course, are aware of it. But it, it gets normal. We, we have to stay in this position and uh, it has to be taken sure that we do nothing else. And uh, so there is one camera in the room, but it, it actually can see only certain parts, not everything, just an observation that we stay in bed. Are you enjoying it? You sound like you're enjoying it. <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> Lying down with your head below your feet at this, at this peculiar angle, it's quite odd seeing you seeing your head. It's like visiting a relative in hospital, but they're slightly, slightly, slightly odd. Normally they're sitting up in bed, they're kind of slightly wrong. Does that have an effect? Do you feel liquid? Do you feel your head swelling at something astronauts always report as feeling a sort of swollen head? Does it make a difference? Yeah, of course, especially in the first days, you, you feel the higher pressure in the head. And the, the uh, 
body liquids uh, flow in the direction of the head. It also is, is a bit of, of dizziness and uh, even slight headaches. Fortunately, the, the body adapts to that and after some days it just feels normal as if you would be lying on a plain ground. And what about when you leave this building? What's the first thing you're going to do? Take some very deep breaths. <laughs> Bed rest study volunteer Christian. And I don't know whether you can tell from that interview, I just couldn't not get my head around the fact that he would want to stay in bed for he that period of time. He very, very happy about it, but you're right. He I think did. it takes a certain personality, I yes, think. Yes, it uh, does. He had mm. a lot of zen in mm. him, I felt. And that's it for the first Space Boffins podcast of 2016. Thanks to our guest, film director Mark Craig. Mark, is there a, a website where people can uh, keep tabs in terms of release dates, etc.? Absolutely. You can find us on thelastmanonthemoon.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Have a search and you'll find us. I think you can stick it into Google, don't you? Get Last Man yeah, on the Moon. Th- that, that kind of thing will work. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society. You can find and uh, interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks for listening. <laughs>